0: Good morning. Good morning. It's wonderful to see all of you here at Springfield Church of the Brethren for worship. Today is December the 19th. This is from 1 Corinthians thirteen four through 13, as Eugene Peterson put it in the message. Love never gives up. Love cares more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first. It doesn't fly off the handle, it doesn't keep score of sins of others, it doesn't revel when others grovel. It takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with everything. Trust God always. Always looks for the best, but never looks back. Keeps going on to the end. Love never dies. Inspired speech will someday be over. Praying in tongues will end. Understanding will reach its limits. We know only a portion of the truth when we say about God is always incomplete. But when the complete arrives, our incompleteness will be canceled. When I was an infant at my mother's breast, I gurgled and cooed like any infant. When I grew up, I left those infant ways for good. We don't yet see clearly. We're squinting in a fog, peering through mist. But it won't be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. We'll see it all then, see it all as clearly as God sees us, knowing him directly, just as he knows us. But for right now, right now, until that completeness, we have three things to lead us towards that consummation. Trust steadily in God. Hope unswervingly. Love. Love. Extravagantly. And the best of these three is love. Amen. I've been struggling all morning with how to do this sermon because I wrote one and then I became convinced I needed to write another this morning. So I'm going to tell my first and I'm going to transition into my second. Because they both seemed important, and frankly, I uh, first time I'd gotten to really talk about one of my favorite books in a sermon, and I really wanted to talk about it. So this is the opening paragraph of that book. I it. Of course, I mess up as soon as I try. Here we go again. I seem to be standing in a bus queue by the side of a long mean street. Evening was just closing in and it was raining. I had been wandering for hours in similar mean streets, always in the rain, always in evening twilight. That time had seemed to pause on that dismal moment when only a few shops had lit up and it was not yet dark enough for the windows to look cheery. And just as the evening ever never advanced to night, so my walking never brought me to better parts of the town. However far I went, I found only dingy-looking houses small tobacconists, hoardings from which posters hung in rags, windowless warehouses, goods stations without trains, and bookshops of the sort that sell the works of Aristotle. I never met anyone, but for this little crowd at the bus stop, the whole town seemed to be empty. I think that is why I attached myself to the queue. This is the opening lines to the short novel by C.S. Lewis, The Great Divorce, which is frankly one of my favorite short novels ever. I cannot highly recommend it enough. You can read it for free online if you want. You can get it from your bookstore. You can get it from the library. It's worth it. The story goes on to follow this unnamed author, the narrator, as he stands in line and you start to meet some of the other people who are standing there. They all seem to be dressed as he is, kind of in gray clothing, in a gray world. And they're all grouches. Like, just grouchy. Immediately, the person in front of him, who he calls the short man, looks up at him and gives him a sneer and makes a comment basically saying, why am I stuck around this riffraff? And the man in front of him who is called the big man. I know it's very original in that. The big man turns around, takes offense at the small man and throws him out of the line. Everyone's on edge. But at last the bus comes and they all start entering. The person driving the bus though is completely different than them. Whereas everyone here is kind of gray and grouchy. This man seems to have light coming from within. He is happy, he's cheerful, he waves and welcomes them, and everyone grumbles because of that. Sounds like a real joy to be on that bus. Then the bus takes off, literally takes off, it starts to fly, it's a dream, as we eventually find out, so buses can fly. As it's flying, he ends up sitting with different passengers one after the other, hearing their stories. And that's when he comes to realize that they're all dead. This is an afterlife. Apparently he was the only one who didn't know it. Everyone else was perfectly aware that they were dead. And he finds out some of their stories. And as he's finding this out, the bus continues to rise higher and higher and it gets lighter and lighter. Until at last, he looks out the window and notices that they are coming up alongside a cliff, flying up along it, and then the bus comes up over the edge. And there is a scene just so completely different from that which he had just been experiencing. Here, it is a wide land full of grass, grassy fields, forests and streams, animals, Out in the distance is a mountain, so large you cannot tell if it's a mountain or a gigantic uh, cloud bank. Here, here everything is full of light and color. Here, instead of being that dismal moment of dusk that he had experienced down below, here it was that golden moment just before a perfect um, summer dawn just as the pink light is coming behind the hill, but the sun hasn't quite peeked over yet. The bus lands, and the driver says to them, you are free to stay here as long as you like. Come back when you're done, or stay. Which they all grumble about, because they grumble a lot. They get off the bus, and he looks around at his fellow passengers and realizes there's something different he hadn't realized. They're all ghosts. They are shades. They are like oily smoke. He can kind of see faces and expressions, but here in this brighter light, it's kind of hard to see faces still. He looks around and he he looks at his feet and sees a leaf. He tries to pick it up, but the leaf is so heavy, he can barely shift it let alone lift it. He tries to walk on the grass, and he is so light that he stands on top of the grass. He can't bend it under his weight. Can you imagine walking on solid grass? I mean, there's a reason they call them blades of grass. Every one of them poking into the bottom of his feet. It was painful. He he actually describes it as being... Uh, Like Han Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid, not the Disney version, but the original version where the mermaid is a beautiful dancer, but every moment she walks is terrible. That's when they look out and they see coming towards them another group of people. But these people are the opposite. They are solids. Not only are they solids, but they are beautific. They shine with the light from within, not like the the driver who actually shined with light, but actually the way that someone who is in very good health, someone who is full of light, or full of life, shines from within. They have come to find the ghost and to invite the ghost to come with them. In short, These are the foothills of heaven. The shades, that town below, you could call it hell if you wanted. Or if you preferred, you could call it purgatory. It was up to you. It was hell if you chose to go back or you chose to stay. It was purgatory if you chose to leave. All you had to do was walk with the solid people. Slowly, your feet would toughen up. Slowly, you too would become more solid until at last you reached the base of the mountain of God and you drank from the everlasting fountain. And then you too would gain salvation. You too would be allowed to stay and to live in this perfection of God. Now, I've got to ask, how many of you would go if you were in that position? How many of you would walk across the painful grass knowing that you would one day reach the fountain and attain perfection with God? I think, honestly, every one of you would, right? Now, C.S. Lewis is trying to make a point. Both points, I think, are right on, which is one of the reasons I love Lewis and his theology, because I agree a lot with this basic tenet. The first being... Obtaining salvation is easy, technically. It doesn't take a lot of work. All you have to do is accept it. All you have to do is be willing to accept the salvation, and you will have it. But technically easy is not always actually easy. And that was his next point because it was not gonna be easy for any of the bus passengers to actually make the journey. It starts with the first solid person that approaches them. He goes straight up to the big man, the one who wants to fight people, the one who has a sense of justice and morality, and he will fight for it. Because the person who comes up to him was a friend in his past life, a friend who was a murderer of another friend How can this be, he says. How can you be up here in heaven while I've been down below? How can you have salvation while I have been stuck there? I have always lived my life right. I've always fought for my rights. I've always fought for justice, as I understand it. I've never taken anything from anyone. The solid person, the the former murderer said, I don't deserve to be here. And that's not the point. The point isn't that you do what's right, the point is that you accept. I've accepted what I did was wrong, and I've accepted that I've been forgiven, that I've been given another chance. I highly recommend you read this story. I'm not gonna go into every little bit of theology that goes through it, it's a great story. But again and again, we find passengers are confronted with the person that makes it hardest for them to go. They have to accept that they need to let go of of what makes them feel like they are in the right in order to, to continue the walk. There is a theologian, a pastor, a bishop, actually, who is all excited to go to heaven. Because he was a great man of God, a great bishop, he led many churches, he thought great thoughts, he wrote many books. And another theologian, a solid theologian, comes in him and says, I'm here to walk with you. And he goes, that's great. I know they've been waiting for me. Well, yeah, we've been waiting for you. I know I need to be there to help make things better. No, you don't. What? You aren't needed. You're wanted, but you're not needed. God wants you there because you are a beloved child of God. But you don't go because you're there to set anything right. You're not there to teach. Everyone understands perfectly. No one needs you to come interpret because everyone fully understands. Just as it talks about in the Corinthians love passage, Such will come a time where we can see God as clearly as God sees us. And what need is there for someone to interpret? There's none. He turns away because he doesn't think he's needed. There is the woman who who meets her mother-in-law, who's angry because it's not her husband who comes to get her her husband, that she had spent her whole life working to get into a better position. She pushed him for, uh, to take on extra jobs. She pushed him to go to all the right functions. She pushed him to dance. She pushed him out of his comfort zone so that he would have a better life and she would have a better life. And she put so much effort into him. And how dare he not be the one who comes and get her? She's so upset that she can't go to her husband and make him into a better person still. She's so upset that she asks that the mother-in-law go get her own son and bring her, him here so that she can take him back down to hell with her. For all of these people, and we... You counter, I think, it's something like 10 or 12 different people who each reject the call of heaven. Only one person accepts. One person who deals with, it's the closest thing you see to a demon in the story, but a, a spirit of lust that forever haunts him. When he is finally willing to let that die, it becomes a glory that actually helps him transform and become a child of God better. It's only by letting those things that hold us back from God that we transform. I think of that in the stories of Joseph and the story of of actually the three kings and three magi. If You might remember last year I mentioned there weren't actually three. We don't know how many there were. They're just called the magi. You know, these are important men. These are high priests in the Zoroastrian religion. These are the kind of men that when a king had a problem, he'd call them up and say, hey, I need advice. And when they see a star in the sky, they go to the logical place of where a king of the Jews would be born. Jerusalem, a palace, Herod's palace. Herod, of course, is confused, annoyed, and angry. And the Magi then go on to Bethlehem. You got to think about the shift here. They had gone to a palace to look for the king, to look for the new king of the Jews. And they find him instead living, well, it might have been a couple years after he had been born. So he might still be in the stable. He might just be in a small little house. We don't really know. But they find him in a very simple place. And they just accept it. They go in and worship this child of peasants and offer him gifts, completely letting go of any pride that would have held them back from kneeling before a child on the dirt. And this is where I go into the second sermon, which really ties into the first. Because when I was writing this, I, I was thinking about, and I'm going to start walking just a heads up for the camera. As I was thinking about this all week, I was really thinking about pride. Because, at least in my my worldview, pride is what keeps us away from God and Jesus the most. Just like it is in the story it's not really the people's sins that keep them back. It's their unwillingness to let go of them because they think they're right, because they are prideful in that. And I think that's a lot of the problems in this world, that we have so much pride in who we are or what we do that we're unwilling to let go of that and let God take over. But I found... I found something else was holding me back this week. It started on Thursday. Now... Some of you know, Gracie has started going to preschool. She goes two days a week, Wednesday and Thursday. It, only four days a week anyway. Well, on Wednesday, we got a text from her school. There had been a little girl who was in on Monday who had COVID. So classes were canceled for Wednesday while they cleaned. And then they decided we're gonna have a half day on Thursday, last day of school for the break anyway. And the kids are just gonna watch uh, Polar Express and make a present for mommy and daddy, which I got somewhere in the house. We'll have to hang it up, I think. And uh, reindeer food, which I'll have to put out with the cookies and milk. Well, should we let Gracie go? Yeah, I'm fine with it. Not a problem. We're honestly not worried about Gracie. We know the chances of her getting it from her classmates are pretty low. We're not really that worried. But she is really stuffy. You know, this is her first school experience anyway. We were waiting for the colds and she's got one. That's actually why she's not here today. Apparently, she woke up super stuffy this morning and Lauren decided not to press it. Also, because I'm gonna tell this story, you'll see why. So we went to her, Gracie, do you wanna go to school? I'm so tired. That's her new thing in the morning, I'm too tired. Are you sure? Yeah. Do you feel okay, Gracie? How's your head? How's your tummy? How are your legs feeling? How's your back? You know, getting getting descriptions of whether we're feeling actually ill or we're just tired is really hard out of a four-year-old. So finally, we make the decision at about 8.45, she is not going to school. We text the teacher, let her know, Gracie's not coming. At 8.50, and I know it was 8.50 because I looked up at the clock as soon as she started. At 8.50, she realized she wasn't going. She was not happy. She started sobbing. And I look at Lauren, I'm like, part of me's fine with keeping her back because she's got to learn at some point the decision she makes has consequences. But at the same time, it's the last day of school. She will not have school until after the 1st. So we talk, and we decide, Okay, we'll send her. Now, it's 8.50. It takes me 15 minutes to get to her school, and she can be dropped off between 9 and 9.15. I am super glad it was pajama day, so at least I didn't have to change her. But I still had to get her through her morning ablutions, you know, potty, hair, teeth, all that fun jazz. Lauren packed her snack, I got her Her boots on and whatnot, and I got to school at (laughs) 9.12. I got that girl out of the house in less than 10 minutes from bed to car. I might have drove a little fast. (laughs) Anyway. As you might imagine, when I got home that day, I was a little stressed. I was trying to come out of it, but it's Thursday morning. I need to get the bulletin done because... Becky, as you know, has been doing the bulletins Thursdays because she's taking Fridays off this month. And I cannot calm down. And my nerves are tad frayed. And so I'm sitting there going, okay, let's do our usual, our usual setting in trick. Let's think about it from the character's point of view. Well, we're talking about coming into Bethlehem We're talking about finding the location. So we we started at the beginning, when Mary and Joseph left Nazareth, and we talked about leaving the familiar, leaving our present comfort. Then we talked about about the things that hold us back that we, we have in our past, our regrets, our shame. We talked about that when when they traveled through the area of Shechem in the mountains of blessings and curses. Then we talked about what people expected of the future. That was last week, you know, whether, you know, political groups or religious groups and what they thought the Messiah was going to be like. So we have a future. So we went from present to past to future. And so this week was going to be what's within what are those things that hold us back within our hearts? And I had thought pride, and then I thought about Joseph. Joseph's an easy character to reflect on for me. There's hardly anything about him. You don't know almost anything about Joseph. You know that he was an artisan. We, we usually say woodworker or woodcarver, but the, the word in there is artisan. He could have been a stonemason. We don't know. He's someone who worked with his hands. We know he was probably older than Mary because that's how it worked back then. We don't know how much older. He could have been, you know, just 20 or 18. He could have been in his 30s. He could have already had a wife and other kids. We don't know any of that. We get one more appearance of him at 12, and then he disappears. So it's easy to reflect yourself on him as a dad because I know what it's like to be a dad waiting for a baby. And you, you, a dad's job is to take care of all the things a mom shouldn't have to. You make sure the car has enough gas in it all the time, because you don't want to get stuck on the side of the road if you're running to the hospital. You make sure the bags are ready to go, that you can grab them. You make sure that if you have other kids, that they'll be taken care of. You are the one who goes up and checks you all in. You're the one who fills out the paperwork as much as you can. You take care of all that. That's your job as a dad is to make your, the life of your wife, of the mother as easy as possible in that process. Because she's got enough going on. I can't help but think that Joseph probably felt like a bit of a failure. I mean, he goes to this strange place where he knows basically no one and he tells his wife, I'm sorry, you're going to have to give birth in the same place the cows give birth. We're going to sleep in the hay tonight or the straw. I got to wonder When he first looked at that baby if he felt a bit like a failure because he didn't perform his one job to make sure that mary was in a clean safe place to have this baby i mean he certainly did better he could have done far worse he did a great job but that doesn't mean necessarily when you do a great job that you feel like you did one And as I sat there and I thought about Joseph and how he felt, I couldn't help but reflect over my last year. I couldn't help but reflect on my own feelings of failure with Sophia. And remembering that you can do everything right and still fail. And I found, as I was thinking about Christmas, that it's really hard for me to take a peek into the manger. I found it's really hard to look at that baby. It's not just pride that can keep us from God. It's anger. It's sadness. It's even rage. But God transforms things. You know, Joseph may have failed in getting Jesus a proper bed, for getting Mary a proper place. But God took that failure, and he made that place, that dirty, awful, full of animal crap place, and he made it something holy. Holy. Something that we bring into our houses every year and set up as decoration. Something so mundane, so dirty, being sanctified. We have a choice. We have a choice whether to carry our pride, our anger, our sadness and hold it in front of us like a shield trying to protect our ego, trying to protect our heart. But God calls us to let that go, to set down the shield because what ends up happening is that shield transforms into something far more beautiful. Whether it is an animal feeding trough that has become a symbol of such pure love, or it's a baby blanket, that reminds you that God cries with you. God transforms. Love transforms. We transform. We just have to be willing to accept it. It's up to us. I'm gonna cry when I look at the manger this year. That's just gonna happen. I'm gonna probably cry every Christmas for a few years. But I'm gonna smile with joy because I know where my daughter is. And because I know God has transformed this pain I'm not sure what exactly it is yet. It's still a little too close. Compassion, love, understanding. I just have to be willing to open myself to where God is calling me. So as you come to the manger, let go. Let the baby take you where you're to go. Be transformed. If you'll join in our final hymn, please. I don't remember what it is. Oh, come, all ye faithful, if you please stand, number 212. I know the great divorce is only a dream, and I have no idea how it all works after we leave this earth. So, I would say in the meantime, don't let your pride, your sadness, your anger, your rage hold you back from accepting the love of God. The love of a baby is so pure. It accepts you for who you are. Just like God's love. It doesn't matter who you are, what you've done, what you might do. God loves you. So as you prepare to come to the manger this week, just accept the love. Let nothing hold you back. Be transformed as this world is about to be. Amen.